my my approach is a bit um, more specific in a way because I actually focus more on uh, livelihood creation and social reproduction and you know the ability to actually recreate use the surplus value and to reinvest in, in the alternative commoning ways. Uh, so it's kind of less focused on the social field and the activist and the social movement field. Um, and so first 10 minutes, I just want to give you a bit of a background um, of kind of the way we think in the P2P Foundation about these issues and then focus on commons transition as a political uh, proposition. So we have a bit more violence in our language because we actually think that we know a few things that we want to convince you uh, that are the right approach. Um, and I, I think, you know, just as a general remark, there's kind of a, a tension between emergence and strategy making in any movement. Um, uh, but I think personally, if you only have emergence and you're facing enemies with strategy, you tend to lose. Uh, because, you know, like when you have a force against you that is really focused, I think actually that's the problem of Podemos, it's kind of like, you know, even in tribal civilizations, when it was war, they had a war chief, right? Then they would come back and they would go back to whatever the activities were, but in this kind of struggle situation, it tends to produce, um, you know, the need for kind of a focused uh, struggle. Anyway, so... Uh, Tina de Moore, who is very uh, known here because she she still works here. Um, wow, chocolates to a Belgian. That's like the <laughs> don't do that because then I I can't speak okay. when, I, when I see the chocolates. <laughs> but 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 keep some. But keep some, right? No, that's that's. Um, I'm gonna hide them because this is like you know having a naked woman and it's just just not gonna work. My concentration. Right. Um, yes, beer also works like that. But anyway, <laughs> um, so Tina de Moore has this really interesting um, uh, graph in a little book called Homo Cooperans, where she calculates the number of civic and cooperative initiatives in the Netherlands from 1980 to 2005 linear, linear growth, but from 2005 on it's exponential. So um, I try really hard to be pessimistic. But I can't, uh, because I see all this flowering of civic initiatives everywhere I go. So I truly think this period will be seen as a period of transition and like a civic renaissance against a dying uh, system. Um, of course, hopefully in, in a generation we will look back uh, and we, we will have won. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so... Uh, especially in Europe, European history, you see, you know, the 10th century, the 15th, 16th century, and I think now again we see a big shift of value regime. What I mean with the value regime is like, how do you get strong in a society? How do you get control of resources? Um, I read this really nice book called uh, The First European Revolution by Richard Moore. I really recommend it to everyone. Uh, basically, until the 10th century, Europe was still having the structures of the Roman Empire. The political power of the Roman Empire was gone, but the social structures, masters, slaves, and freemen was still the dominant social structure. And it took a, a social mobilization, a social revolution, called the Peace of God movement, which started in the south of France, um, with the massive mobilizations of poor people under the leadership of the monks of Cluny, uh, to create a new social contract, 
which led to the transformation of the plunderer economy to the feudal economy. Similarly, you could think about the 15th century, the invention of you know, double book accounting by the Franciscans and the Templars, the printing press, the purgatory as an ideological construct, uh, reformation, all these things as a kind of the invention of the patterns that which have eventually become the value regime of capitalism, right? So I think this is what's happening today, and I, I just want to briefly explain how I see how I see this. But in contrast, which was the dominant form today, right? Today, basically, we think that value is economic value and is created in the market uh, by private individuals and corporations through private market relations, and that's where the value is created. So educating your children doesn't have value. Uh, volunteering to clean up an oil spill doesn't have value, right? It's not recognized in this regime. Uh, because market relations are uh, geared towards private mutual benefit, uh, we have a market, we have a state that regulates from the outside, and civil society, to be a bit cynical, is what you do when you come home tired. Uh, unless you're lucky enough to have some subsidies which come from the markets being taxed and then sent you know, indirectly to the civic organization. So this is kind of the, the mainstream thinking about you know, where, where value comes from. Think about Mark Rutte here, prime minister saying, you know, we're gonna make money with the green transition, right? So it's, this way of thinking is, is really what's in the heads of these kind of people. Now I think today we see something else emerging and, you know, first maybe identified by Jochai Benkler is uh, the wealth of networks and the concept of commons-based peer production. Um, so what is happening today is that we are moving from closed systems to open contributor systems. Uh, think about Wikihouse, Wikispeed, Arduino, Linux, Wikipedia, uh, a flowering of platforms where the productive knowledge is being mutualized um, and where the, the vision of value becomes a different vision. The vision of, of value is that the value is being contributed in these platforms. So this is not labor as a commodity, producing commodities as products. This is contributions of citizens creating commons. So think about Wikihouse as a platform for the production of sustainable housing, right? The, the productive capacity, the productive knowledge is being mutualized through contributions of the architects and all the various experts that produce, co-produce, all the, all the knowledge that they need to actually do that value creation. Um, just to give you an example, in the P2P Foundation Wiki, which is, as Edsel said, you know, we try to be kind of like a commons of knowledge. So what we say is we peer produce knowledge about peer production. Um, um, we have one section about uh, contributive accounting, open value accounting, contributive accounting. What you see happening in these communities like Sensorica, which is an open science hardware community, or uh, Enspiral.org in, in, in um, New Zealand, uh, these new forms of contributive accounting have a completely different notion of value. In Sensorica, value is what everybody says value is. Like, I, I give my space, I work three hours, I, I give you a microscope that you can use for two hours, 
every form of contribution is actually recognized in that new form of accounting. Um, it's peer reviewed and then you have a karma, you get the digital karma. Uh, and then the social contract says, if market value is created afterwards, we will make sure that everyone gets according to his contribution. It's one of the ways in which you know, the, the struggle for value is taking place by redefining what value is from the bottom up through a dialogue and discussions in, this, in these communities. Now, the paradox, of course, is that in a, when you do this in a dominant system, uh, the old system is going to try to use and co-opt and dominate and extract value from the emergence also of this new value regime. The, the Roman, the Roman uh, structures used prefigurative feudal forms to, in order to, to exist longer, such, uh, such as the, the Ancien Regime used capital forms to also maintain itself. So now we have this peer production, this new creation of value, but you have these giant sucking machines, uh, which I call netarchal capital. But it's important to see that it's a new form of capital because in the old form of capital, we destroy the commons and we, we ignore negative externalities, social environmental externalities. In the new regime, we actually enable and empower the commons, but we suck value out of the collective value creation. So the, the new form of capitalism like Google and YouTube and Uber and Airbnb are directly trying to capture value from human cooperation, right? They no longer use labor, right? I mean, how many people does Facebook actually uh, work with? Very few, but they have 1.5 billion people co-creating value on their platform, right? So this is what we call by uh, netarchical cap um, capitalism. And so my, my point of view is the following. Uh, and I use an analogy here. Imagine you were living at the late 18th century and you're a capitalist. You're a capital owner. Uh, yeah, why not? We have to learn from the enemy, nice. right? Nice. Uh, <laughs> like um, and this is actually, you can find this in the Great Transformation from Karl Polanyi. It's called the putting out system. So how did it work? They had already the capital to buy machines, to buy raw material. But labor was still working in guilds and crafts. So what they would do is they would rent the machines, rent the raw material, and then buy back the finished product. In other words, capital was codependent on the Ancien Regime. It was codependent on the remnants of the feudal system in order to exist. And then in 1838, or is it 1841? Anyway, in that kind of period, you have the poor laws, which abolished the basic income system, which existed in English villages called the Spinhamland system, and suddenly all labor had to become a commodity in order to survive. So that's when labor itself being a commodity, capitalism can fully reproduce itself. So this is the idea and maybe you, and you'll, uh, that, I, that we have is how can we do this for peer production? And so this is the way, uh, it's a bit little, but I think you can still see it. Uh, this is the way that we, we try to see how can we make peer production autonomous? How can we ourselves create and control the surplus value that we create through our work and reinvest it in our new value regime? 
as you know, autonomous peer production communities having their own uh, entities that create and maintain an economy and a livelihood around these contributions, right? Because this is the problem now. I want to do something meaningful. I want to make the world a better place. Many, many young people want to do this. 98% uh, of design students in Alto University in Finland say they want to do this. But 98% of these design students are going to have to do planned obsolescence if they find a job in a, in a corporation, right? Uh, so if you, if you don't want to accept this, today the only choice is, is to create your own social entrepreneurial or whatever you want to call it, uh, entities to try to create livelihoods around uh, these sh uh, shared productive resources. So the idea is to have around these productive communities ethical entrepreneurial coalitions. And so what they do is you're a commoner. Uh, inside the commons there's no market because it's, abundant, it's an abundant shareable resource. It's beyond price. So that there's no economy in our capitalist sense in there. Um, but as long as we live uh, in this dominant system, one, one of the things we can do is, well, as a commoner, I'm going to become a cooperator. So I'm going to create an open co-op that allows me to contribute. So um, if the way uh, I define open co-ops is it's uh, not for profit. So any surplus you produce is reinvested in the social goal of your entity. Second, it's multi-stakeholder. So you recognize all the people who are impacted in your activity and you give them a voice in the direction of, of that activity. And third, you are statutorily engaged in co-creating commons uh, using open licenses and different forms like that, right? So that creates, instead of capital accumulation, it creates cooperative accumulation in an ethical market, in a post-capitalist market. Um, if you want to have an idea what that can be, um, think about the AMAPs, I don't know how you call them in the Netherlands, the consumer-supported agriculture method, right? Where a group of consumers get together, pull together their purchasing power, mm -hmm. and make a contract with a farmer or more than one farmer, and become soli in solidarity with the production capacity of the farmer. So you buy X percent and depending on the success and the weather and all the factors that influence, so you create not an antagonistic relationship, but a solidarity-based uh, relationship. It's still a market in the sense that you use money, but it's not. There's no capital accumulation, right? It's not. The means of production are are not separated from the production. Production. Uh, if it's a co-op, you have democratic management uh, of that entity. And the, the, the money that's realized is reinvested in the productive capacity of the real value producers. So I feel confident in saying that this is a post-capitalist post market form that is aligned and in harmony with the productive community and its commons logic. Um, but at this stage, you still need to do that because we don't have a fully abundant material sphere. We have a fully abundant knowledge sphere, but we don't have yet a fully abundant material sphere, right? So if you think about the 19th century definition of socialism and communism, uh, communism was everybody contributes what he wants and uses what he needs. That's what we have today in the immaterial sphere. But in the material sphere, it's socialism, everybody according to his contribution, right? It's not capitalism. It's 
so this is the ideal kind of way out today that these predictive communities have. And so I'm not going to talk about it today because that's not the subject. Uh, but so I go down to the, the bottom here. So if you look at the institutional and emergence of peer production, you have the productive community using mutual coordination mechanisms, unity of effort without unity of command. This, by the way, comes from the American army. So thank you. Thank you for the internet and thank you for this wonderful concept. Um, uh, now they're doing 3D printing to make arms, so they're all showing the way once again. Uh, they're driving around in Afghanistan, you know, making spare parts with 3D printing trucks. Uh, so we can learn from them. Uh, anyway, so unity of effort without unity of command. Uh, so this is what's happening in Wikipedia, Linux, Arduino. Uh, there's no production command system anymore. There's a mutual signaling systems which allow people to coordinate their efforts. Then you have these entrepreneurial coalitions, um, and the, but there's also four benefit associations. Wikimedia Foundation, Ardu Ard I don't know if there's an Arduino Foundation, but there probably is. GNOME Foundation, Perl Foundation, Linux Foundation. What do they do? They do not command production, but they enable and empower and maintain the infrastructure of cooperation. Right, So the Wikimedia Foundation gets money for the servers but doesn't tell any Wikipedian what they should be doing. So this is the third. So what I'm doing here is the bold hypothesis that this seed form that we find in a microeconomy is actually an economic form, a macroeconomic form and even a form of society in which civil society becomes productive, citizens contribute to commons, create value, not just private labor, uh, the economy takes into account externalities, becomes an ethical economy, which, which allows a self-reproduction of the common sphere. And we have a territorial for-benefit association, which is the state. So I see the Wikimedia Foundation as the state. Why? Because it takes care of the common good of Wikipedia, right? So we should not forget commons are also selfish. If you're a free software developer doing Linux, maybe you don't care about gender balance. Maybe you don't care about climate change. If you are a neighborhood collective in Bologna, you know, maybe you don't care about the other neighborhoods, right? So I see the need for common good institutions that regulate the territory. So I, as an example, we can give the Bologna regulation for the care and regeneration of the urban commons. Uh, it allows every neighborhood collective to make proposals to improve the neighborhood. There's an evaluation process and then a negotiation between the city and the collective about how can we help you as a city to realize that project. Money, infrastructure, space. So I think it's pretty clear that this is a kind of radical reversal of a vision of the state because the actual policy making is actually done by the citizen collective. They're making the proposal, they're producing policy. But the enabling and empowering is done through this new mechanism that the city has adopted. Uh, so this is the vision, really, for me, of how we can transform the state. Now, of course, you know, if you think the state how it exists today, it's pretty hard to imagine that it can evolve in that direction. But I think what we can do is what we, we did in Bologna, is prefigurative experiments. 
right? Uh, there are niches out there with Nkomu, for example. You know, that for me could allow a flowering of prefigurative partner state experiments where the state starts acting in a different way, not as somebody that produces undemocratic public services that are passively consumed, but actually, you know, is creating all the capacities that the citizens need to contribute themselves with personal and social autonomy. You know, and this is why the Netherlands are so interesting, because here, of course, you're doing the opposite. Sure. You know, the so-called participatory society is the exact opposite of the partner state, because it actively destroys capacity building. Right? It's a fraud. It's, it's a right-wing recuperation of the commons and peer-to-peer language, just as the big society was in the UK. And it's actually more dangerous than, the, obviously, you know, the, the Rajoy government was a very consciously anti-commons and anti-peer-to-peer -peer government. You know, when you put a tax of 14,000 euro on a solar panel, forget about distributed energy as a commons. You can't do it, right? There's very specific anti-commons uh, politics. So the partner state is not those two bad examples. It's something I think that Bologna shows uh, an example of, and, and I think probably in Barcelona, but I don't know it as well, we will see more and more examples of, of these kinds of practices. So I think the first time we did this was in, um, where is it? In Ecuador. Uh, it didn't end well, uh, but it was an interesting experiment. Um, so the, the question of the Ecuadorian government, and so this was the Ministry of Knowledge, the Secretary of Innovation, and the University for Public Officials, called IAEN, asked a group of people, and I was the research coordinator, to can we move from a, an extractive economy that depends on finite material resources to, an, to a, a social knowledge economy that depends on abundant immaterial uh, and infinite resources. So here's the way we, we you know, with the, our methodology that we proposed. So let's imagine that you have an economy that functions around huge commons, an education commons, a cultural commons, a science commons, an industry commons, an agricultural commons. In other words, all the productive knowledge that you need as a society is available for everyone. All citizens, all entrepreneurs, all public officials in these vast collective resources, right? So the first question, that's the top um, row, is how do we feed the commons? What do we need to actually have an open education commons, for example, or an open science commons to be uh, to give an example, if you don't have open access publishing, no. you can't have an education commons, right? Because certainly indigenous students in Ecuador are not going to uh, be able to afford 40 euro per scientific article, right? So if you don't change that, it's just a word, the education commons. You really need the feeding mechanisms to be working. Uh, what we also looked at was material uh, infrastructures. So, for example, if you move from a proprietary science lab to an open source lab, and you know, just buy the book Open Source Lab by Joshua Pierce, and you have the whole thing explained, like 98% of make you know of products 
you, they're now existing more and more in open source versions. An example I was given was the Zeiss uh, microscope, costs you 15,000 euro, open SPIM, open source version, very, very, very similar, it's 1,000 euro. Of course, it's the same people that do it at night, right? So that's why it's so similar. Um, but it's all there. All these machines are there. They all exist. And if you do that, you can have four to eight times more science labs in a country like Ecuador. So you explode you know, the capacity of society to do this, right? Uh, regulation is also important. So this is what's the immaterial infrastructures. And uh, give you an example. Uh, Ecuador has a really good free software decree on paper. In practice, they cannot find uh, graduates that are willing to work for $15,000, $1,500 a month for the Ecuadorian state or cities that actually produce this free software. Um, yet they have probably 5,000 young people in the country that actually have learned on their own to code through peer-to-peer -peer learning communities. Um, so here, if you would have a law, for example, that would say, we recognize open certification, open accreditation, and we create some link with a recognized education institution, then suddenly those 5,000 people become available. Um, so you see, so if you also have to work on these immaterial rules. Now, what's lacking here is very obvious, but this was our contract, so this you know, it was not our choice, was this is obviously only about immaterial commons. But we have housing commons, we have food commons, so this was not part of our mandate, and so we could not work on it. Uh, but for me, you know, this is what I'd love to do if I had financing again, was, is to do that work as well, because then we would have a fairly complete vision of what it could mean to actually move in a strategic way to a commons-based society and economy, right? So, um, so just to give you evaluate very quickly, when we came in, there was kind of a, a brief moment of vacillation uh, in the Ecuadorian government, uh, where it seemed possible to actually do this. Uh, but uh, very quickly, they moved again to the extractivist uh, position. And as you know, they had Yazuni, the project to protect uh, the rainforest. And while we were there, they, they abolished that project, and they now sold at least, I don't know how much they sold, but you know, a big amount of land already to Chinese companies. So they claim they want eco-agriculture. In the constitution, it's the five-year plan, but they hire Monsanto to train their farmers. So, you know, uh, in that context, the, the, our 18 proposals that were done fairly quickly moved into drawers. Uh, but just to say that we had a pretty participatory process, so that was kind of interesting. So what we did was 24 local workshops, one in every province, to get civic input from local people, you know, young people, women's organizations, indigenous organizations. Then we had a structured process to talk with about 70 different civic organizations. And we made a synthesis of those two phases and we put that online. 
And then we had another period, I think six weeks, where people could uh, interact with the online. We used something called Comment, uh, which is a software for, you know, to change legal text in a way. Uh, and then we had a um, big conference with one-third experts, one-third local people, and what was it again? Uh, and one-third state, right? So public officials, experts, and uh, civic organizations together. Um, so I think it still was a very interesting experience. Um, at the state level, to be honest, I don't see it happening anytime soon. We would need we would need political forces like uh, like in Spain is happening, and briefly we could have thought maybe in Greece could have happened, uh, but this would require actually to change the visions and the politics of the left today. Because to be honest, you know there's still left Keynesian in their very fundamental outlook, so they may entertain ideas about the commons, but when they're under pressure. You know the the kind of things that come out under pressure are these kind of basic uh, Keynesian uh, identity, and you know it's still in the old paradigm. It still believes you have to have a strong market that you can tax, and then you can invest you know invest in other things. So the idea to directly support the commons especially when you're under stress, is something that is uh, difficult to achieve at, uh, for now at the state level. But I think at the local level, uh, it's quite different. And it's different probably because one of the things, if you live in a city, is that you know, you're so much closer, as Manuela also explained to the people, you're much closer to the pressure. You're so there's less games, political games, that you can play. And so it seems to be at this stage that you know, what's happening in Barcelona, what's happening in Bologna, what's happening in Seoul, uh, is where the really interesting stuff is happening around this transition towards sharing forms, I'm not talking about Uber, uh, commons forms, uh, with political support. Now, I still believe, I'm, I'm not a libertarian, I guess, in that sense, so I still believe that, you know, it's the combination of the bottom-up with the resources of the public sphere that can really make a difference. Um, I still think we need to scale. I'm probably different from Catherine, what Katharina Gibson in, the, in that sense. So I, I, I see the, the big issue is the following for me. It's fragmentation. It's, uh, where is it here? Right, so if you look at this um, slide for a bit, this is our secret plan to take over the world. So please keep it... Uh, uh, um, confidential. Um, so here's what I see happening, right? So we have already 10 years ago in Blessed Unrest from Paul Hawken, two million organizations in the world are already working on a transition towards sustainability. The number of commons initiatives, you know, I have 20,000 in my wiki, but it's like, it's not even the top of the iceberg. It's like, there's so much more that is happening today in terms of openness, you know, creating commons, in many, many different spheres, local, regional, state, global. Uh, the solidarity economy is growing as well. There's a renewal of the cooperative economy. So all these things are happening at the grassroots level, but they're fragmented, right? And so this is, for me, it's a big issue, is this fragmentation. And I think, actually, we need to overcome that fragmentation. And I think, personally, 
that the city is a really powerful way to overcome that uh, fragmentation. So just uh, maybe to, as an example, I think cities should create, and they're being created by, by citizens already, you know, transition platforms. Food transition, energy transition, shelter transition, mobility transition, where all the stakeholders at the local level, the ethical entrepreneurs, the civic organizations and the informal networks of citizens can you know, devise together strategies for the transition which can then be proposed to the city and can inform the policy making and the allocation of resources to this transition. Uh, there is a Belgian-German economist called Christian Berger has a very good proposal. I think it's called the transition income. And the idea is the following. There's market failure and there's state failure. We need to solve you know, this global uh, dissolution of the ecosphere, um, and it's not happening. But we see millions of citizens doing it in precarious uh, situations, so why not fund directly transition initiatives and, tra and citizens in actively involved in transitioning the different subsystems of our society towards what we need? Um, Think about it. Uh, Uber is now creating, as a reaction, Uber co-ops. So you have Arcade City in Vermont, but there's, there's a, a directory called the Internet of Ownership. There will have a lot, maybe 100 items there. So these are called so-called platform co-ops. So people that co-produce value taking themselves, you know, their platforms in their own hands rather than relying on extractive platforms. Um, so we have Uber, uh, an Uber co-op, uh, it's called Arcade City in Vermont. But think about it, you know, all these Uber co-ops are going to create their own software. You know, what a huge waste of resources, resources right? Uh, so I see a role again of the city as a, as a locus of mutualization, of creating, you know, a meta level of cooperation between all these various uh, grassroots bottom-up initiatives. So I think to answer your question is, you know, we need diagonal forms, right? We need, between the vertical and the grassroots horizontalism, we need diagonal, uh, you know, hybrid forms that can use the strength of the top-down allocation system into the grassroots compositional sphere, which is what I learned from Manuela. Um, I, I steal concepts, I have to warn you. I steal concepts. Ah, so, yeah. I try, it's, it's time already. All right. So, very quickly, this is the strategy we're proposing. So, we need convergence between those three types of solutions sustainability, commons, and solidarity. So, the open source circle economy is the convergence between sustainability and the commons. And open cooperativism, platform cooperativism, is this conversion between the commons and the ethical economy. Uh, we need assemblies of the commons and chairman of the commons, places where the citizens and the ethical entrepreneurs can find a voice and create proposal towards the public sphere. We need commons transition coalitions, like in Melbourne, uh, where people who are motivated to work you know, more specifically on the commons transition can get together to learn from each other. And then at the global level, and I will close with this, we need united transnational republics. 
So we need to get together at a global level. All the transnational groups need to learn to work together and all the global business ecosystems, the ethical ecosystems need to work together as well. I call this the Global Files Organization. Files is a Greek word for um, tribe. Right. And then we need money that's at the bottom. Um, uh, yes, the Open Cooperative Development Agency. What's that? Well, here's the problem. You can get money for sustainability. You can get money from the commons, especially extractive money. And you can get money for the solidarity cooperative. But if the solidarity, if you try to do both together, like wiki speed, no patents, using five times less uh, gas to drive your car in the in the under the condition that you still want a car, they don't find money because even the fi ethical finance world asks for patents as collateral. So this is the stuff you can do in Barcelona, right? Is finding solutions for all that stuff. And because, you know, the big problem with Syriza, I'm really closing. The big problem with Syriza, you know, we can critique them or defend them, you know, because of they, their submission to the neoliberal, you know, dictates. Uh, but look at the alternative, look at Venezuela. You know, a hugely antagonistic strategy doesn't seem to work either, right? Don't tickle the, the dinosaur when you're too weak. Uh, but what I think we can do is, when we have power, is create commons infrastructures that can last even if when we lose electoral majorities. And this is something we really need to start working on. Is you know, creating these policy proposals. This is what we can do. Create autonomy as much as autonomy as we can for peer production communities, so that they create and use their own surplus value. It's not revolution yet, but it's like moving from emergence to parity. And I think this is in the next 10, 15 years what we can start doing. Thank you. Thank you very much, Michel. A 10 or 15 year plan, that's good. That's what we need, I guess. Um, I don't know how we are with time, actually. Mm. Mm -hmm. And uh, how with the schedule? How <laughs> oh, we do? Oh, that's perfect then. All right. So let's have um, 10, 15 minutes of question and then a little break. And then we uh, join up for the discussion with everyone. Who has a question? Uh, <laughs> very short. <laughs> yes, I know it's just uh, uh, it's uh, not a question, but uh, kind request to uh, give a bit more elaboration on the limitation limitation that you experience in Ecuador. Um, well, you know, it's just for the little story. Um, uh, the people who actually started the project invited six people in the research team to come to Ecuador with, and they didn't tell us that they didn't have a budget, right? That was the first thing that went wrong. 
And so from the very beginning, we fell in a, in a, fra a faction struggle within the Ecuadorian government. And they stopped our funding for four months. Now, at that time, I was still very precarious. And uh, all of the people that I hired were very precarious, because <laughs> I only knew precarious people. Uh, so imagine, you know, just surviving four months when you have no income and you have no reserves. That wasn't easy. But also in terms of psychologically, you know, what, what, am I, what are we doing here? Like, you know, if they don't pay us, does that mean they want us, they don't want us? So that was kind of, uh, but I do think there was, you know, there was a, a kind of internal struggle, not just between fractions, but between people, in, inside people, right? So wanting to do something different, but under pressure, retracting to what you know and you think you need to do to survive. And I think it's the same with Syriza. They had plans, but because of the pressure, you know, they just reverted to the, a minimum amount of like survival practice. Um, and so this is, uh, uh, you know, my critique on Syriza frames would be that they didn't believe in their own alternative, right? When push come to shove, they thought that the neoliberal world order, you know, is the world order and that they had to give in instead of taking a risk for change. Um, and so I think the same happened in Ecuador, you know, under the pressure of having to deliver material benefits to the electorate. Uh, under the pressure of their enemies, you know, well, the only thing we can do is sell oil. So, you know, maybe we want to move towards these commons, but right now, you know, there's no space for it, right? And so they reverted. Actually, at the very moment we were there, they reverted to their kind of instincts uh, and to extractivism. And we see that happening in, in Bolivia as well, right? The, the idea that you need those extractive resources, otherwise you can't pay for social redistribution. This is a very strong subconscious, you know, conviction. Um, and I think we all have it in some ways, you know, so, so I'm not saying, so even us, you know, we, we have this. Uh, at every moment in our lives, we have to take these risks, whether we think that we can, you know, create value in this new way or just make sure I get money income, you know, just to make sure I'm safe, right? So we, we have this as well. Um, yeah, so in the end, what happened in Ecuador is that uh, the management team, which we ended up fighting with at the end, they went to another institution. They, they still continue to work, but mostly around IP. And a little progress has been made around IP. And our kinds of projects, um, you know, the, the, the full Monty, as it were, the only place where we can actually move forward is at the local level. So we, we found financing for a district which wants to move into this open cooperative uh, direction, uh, you know, moving up the production communities to a higher levels of um, uh, processing so that they can keep more of the surplus value. Um, and what the indigenous people were interested in in that area was open agricultural machining um, because they don't have access to technology. Um, and, and, and you know, even if they had, it would be too expensive. They would have to go into debt. Uh, so the idea of making their own machines, uh, as is now happening in France with Atelier Paysan, you know, you just 
the farmers make their own machines and, and put them on the internet and do workshops and make them together. So that was something that was very appealing to Ecuador. Um, so I worked with Ceres as well. We went, you know, two times ten days, but again, not much uh, actually happens, uh, you know, with with it. Uh, so I think at, at this stage, it's at the city level that really where, you know, you can move forward. Because there, you know, there's real political forces in different cities that actually um, have these types of visions. So you probably know more about Seoul than me. And I know it's partly neoliberal, but Seoul has a very interesting sharing policy. Because what they did was they went to every neighborhood to ask people what they wanted. They didn't start with startups or with venture capital. They actually started with a strategy based on you know, asking citizens what they wanted in terms of mutualizing, mutualized infrastructures. Um, I don't even know if you can answer, but you mentioned WikiHouse. Um, but how many of the houses that then are, like the parts of houses that are on WikiHouse eventually end up engaging with the issue of land? Uh, because you can have an open source house, but then you still need to, you know, to put it in places that where it's needed. And so I'm thinking about um, I'm sort of working in Cali, which is the third city of Colombia, and there, there's many, I don't know how many projects that um, are basically urban development projects, um, but also uh, climate, uh, climate change related projects that are displacing a lot of people. So I was wondering, do you know examples of wiki houses that actually engage with the issue that there is, there is land available in Cali, but it's... Um, it's contested between different municipalities. And so the municipality of Cali, for example, doesn't want to go talk to the next municipality because they have expansion wishes as well. And, and so the issue, the land, land becomes artificially scarce, although it's not. And so, for instance, an example like WikiHouse, how do you, you know, you, we have a house, but then how do you engage with land politics? Well, you know, that's what I call fragmentation, right? I mean, I think most citizens at the grassroots level, they get excited about a particular thing they want to do, and then they do that. But it doesn't mean they look at the full picture. And so there's a lack of a narrative, in my view, that's what we try to provide, integrative narratives that... So WikiHouse, you know, I love them, but they're not working on that at all. It's not part of their vision. Their vision is making sustainable houses. And, at the, and then at the other side, you have community land movements that you know fight to have that type of land. But then when they succeed and they create a co-op, they ask a developer to make unsustainable houses on their land. Uh, and so that's the, that's the issue, I think, that we need to solve. We need to create this narrative so that the community land movement knows that the wiki house you know, is, is what they can use when they've succeeded in getting, you, you, need what, you know what I mean? So this is the kind of coalitions we need to build. We need to build these coalitions where these people can start talking together, they can start understanding their viewpoints, start f learning about solutions that can come from the other side, and we largely don't have that. 
Um, but if you would create, maybe that's an idea for you, if you would create a you know, housing transition initiative in Cali, maybe you can bring those people together, right? And even if you don't have a wiki house yet, you can then connect with the wiki house movement and they can give you input. Um, you know, there was a very interesting thing in the United States, the tiny house movement. Um, you know, because even young people in the US can, can no longer afford housing, right? So a tiny house is not like a big thing. And they thought they would have 4,000 people. Um, yeah, if you don't have housing, a tiny house looks very big. <laughs> Uh, they um, they got forty thousand people at their conference, uh, totally overwhelmed by the interest. Um, anyway, so the idea is no. So my answer my answer is no, and that's really a shame that that doesn't exist. That that kind of you know integrative vision where people doing different things can see they can be complementary is usually lacking. Hi, can you see me or should yeah, I stand up? I can see you. Okay. Uh, I was wondering about your ideas and something you mentioned a bit earlier in your talk, which was about autonomous peer production. And I was trying to connect this or bridge it to Manuela's um, talk, where she was saying if commons get too big, they have to uh, shut parts or split up to get new commons. Because it, I think with, with the, uh, autonomous peer production, for me, there's a similar thing going on when there's growth, right? Then, then if you talk about the solidarity towards the farmer, to the resources he has or she has, um, there's a limit to this. So I was wondering what your ideas, considering this, are. Well, okay. Um, so I actually believe we need scale. But I think the idea that you need hierarchy for scale, that's what you need to abandon, right? but not the idea of scale itself. So if you look at Wikipedia, Linux, these are scaled at a global level, and there is no production hierarchy. There is a kind of a control mechanism, you know, the maintainers and the editors, and that doesn't always work well, especially in the case of Wikipedia. But there is there a force. You know, there's a force that can act at a global level. Wikipedia influences the whole world, Linux influences the whole world. This is something we need because if we don't do it, the multinationals that are there, or you know, or maybe very old-style NGOs that we, and we need something different. So I think this idea, so that already works in the level of like global open design communities. Uh, but then when you make, let's say you make a wiki house or you make a wiki speed car or you know whatever, then we fall back on the local, and I think we should have these global open co-ops. But that doesn't mean they have to be hierarchical. It means we have to find mechanisms that allows us to have you know, a scaled identity and a scaled influence. Uh, how to exactly do this, I'm not sure. But one of the things that I'm working on is called mutual coordination economics. And so, okay, here's the idea. It's a bit complicated, but today we have you know, this kind of cyber communism. In other words, we, we now know how to make global social objects, like Wikipedia, through open contributions, uh, et, cetera, et cetera. So this is called technically merging systems, coordination through signaling. And we can do this at a global scale. Now, if we can create entrepreneurial coalitions, 
and they can shift towards open supply chains and open book accounting. Then we get stigmergic coordination at the level of physical production. And then we can scale. Right? Then everybody in a coalition like that can see what everybody else is doing and can say, well, you know, why should I make more shoes you know, if I see there's an overproduction of shoes anywhere? You don't need central planning anymore or market pricing. You can just see it, right? And then you can build institutions of communication and dialogue and consensus and whatever you want on top of that globalized coordination mechanisms. But I do think personally, you know, we need to scale. We, I mean, you can have a fishery commons, and but if you don't scale, you know, the big ship is still going to steal all your fish just outside of the your nautical miles, right? And, or the idea that you can solve an issue like, uh, you know, Fukushima. You know, no way. I mean, we need to scale. But we can scale without hierarchy. And this is what we need to invent. We need to invent those new ways of scaling that does not involve, you know, bureaucracy and, and all the things that we don't like about the old forms of scaling. But I think we can do this. We have, we have the affordances. And then the next thing we need is all culture, right? We need cultural work. Because all these successful peer production communities they work a lot on culture, like, you know, like in Spiral in New Zealand. They go on retreats. They, you know, they go in the wilderness for 10 days and they get to know each other, they get to trust each other. And so you can't just build communities by you know, doing code on the internet. You need to create physical mechanisms as well. And it's always the mutual strengthening of the virtual by the physical and of the physical by the virtual that makes you stronger than the old forms. You know, I'm very optimistic because Wikipedia has already displaced Britannica. Linux has forced, uh, forced Microsoft to, to give Windows for free. So we are seeing this. This is happening. We, you know, we can do stuff without bureaucracy and without the corporations. Are there more questions still? I, I was going to ask one. Okay. Uh, Let's have I, a brief one, and then we have a little, it can uh, be brief. little break, okay. and then uh, we continue. Okay, thank you. Um, I just wanted to first thank you, um, both of you, for your presentation that were really inspiring. And um, so my question is quite simple, and it was uh, going back to the Equatorian uh, case. In one of the slides, you were mentioning the civic input, input and some Equatorian, uh, Equator workshops. So. I was just wondering if you could maybe briefly talk a bit more about how you have been working with the citizens there and the grassroots movements and what these workshops were referring to. Well, so this first phase, so these 24 provincial workshops, we, we used, um, how is it called, theater of the oppressed uh, as a method. So we had like a theater group, basically, you know, playing four different scenarios of what the commons could mean and then just kind of like a dialogue with the people that were present, usually 30, 40 people. Um, then the other phase, civic participation, it was just like basically we had five, five different fields, you know, like housing, indigenous rights, agriculture, um, industry. And basically each one of us, you know, had a series of discussions really one-to-one -one with representatives of these organizations. So it was, the, um, and then the third phase, 
anybody who wanted could change the texts, right? So we wrote the texts except for the indigenous uh, paper that was done by indigenous people themselves because we we didn't feel, you know, kind of at ease doing that in their place. Um, yeah, so it was a mixture, right? And you probably know, of course, there was critique when we came, like, you know, what are these foreigners coming, you know, to do? Um, it's hard to answer those kinds of critiques. Uh, but from our point of view, you know, there was a progressive government, had done a lot of good for the country. Um, and, you know, can we find an ideal way to mix outside and inside, right? Because... People from the outside have insights, and people from the inside have insights. And can we find, you know, a, a mechanism that that brings them both together? Personally, I thought it worked pretty well. What didn't work was the end, where we thought we, you know, we had a mandate, and then the government basically, you know, after the big show, didn't do anything with it. And that's because there was no social basis for our work right there were it didn't come from the grassroots in in terms of demand it was an idea from a minister so we had no one to rely on to actually put pressure to make it happen uh, i just want to say this because this is important you know i mean i'm very critical especially now after i've seen many things about the ecuadorian government but we shouldn't forget i mean these were at some point hugely successful social experiments you know like if you look in terms of education illiteracy uh, basic income I mean they 1% of GDP in those countries uh, diminished uh, poverty five times more than in Asia which shows you the power of politics right because in, in Asia it's just economic growth it's very unequal in Ecuador, Bolivia, when it's coupled with redistributionist policies, it had a huge effect on poverty. And uh, but it's you know, it's kind of still an authoritarian uh, method as well, and that's kind of the problem we have, right? It's even though they achieve great things, the way in which the politics work is is very centralized, top down, you know, mixed with some repression. Um, Thank you for now. Let's have another break. 10 minutes. 10 minutes and then we get back for the final discussion. <laughs>